0: Welcome to the Ethics and Compliance Library, where each episode, we will take a deep dive into an ethics and compliance book, giving you the inside scoop through interviews with authors and industry leaders. I'm your host, Lauren Siegel. In episode two of the Ethics and Compliance Library, we will analyze giving voice to values by Mary Gentili. Giving Voice to Values, or GVV, not only explores how each of us can prepare to voice our values in different difficult situations, why we do and don't, but also sets up a framework with tools for how to strengthen the muscle for doing so. Through an interview with Dr. Mary Gentili herself, as well as an interview with ethics and compliance leader, Blair Marks of Lockheed Martin, we will begin to uncover not only how to action this practice as individuals, but how and why it is invaluable to do so at the organizational level. Listeners can expect to better understand the framework laid out in Giving Voice to Values and have some actionable takeaways for how to implement that framework as an individual looking to more consistently step into their values and as a leader looking to positively impact their organization. Join me in the Converge community, converge.conversant.com, to continue engaging in the conversations started in this podcast episode today. It is easy to look around the business world, or really our everyday world even, and wonder how we could possibly voice our values. Stifled by regulations and pressures from managers and peers, Our values are so easily brushed under the rug. What are our values even? I would encourage all listeners to first think about what key values they most feel connected to in their life. These will change over time, but often are deeply tied to who we are as family members, friends, employees, and global citizens. For me, one of these values is honesty. Another, vulnerability. What are your values? What are your organization's values? Now place yourself in a thought experiment and explicitly ask yourself. What if you were going to act on your values? What would you say and do? Dr. Gentili continuously asks this and helps to equip us with a toolkit to, quote, grease the skids that might carry us there. There being the place where we can effectively voice our values. Quote, sidestepping all the preemptive arguments and rationalizations that pop up naturally about how difficult or impossible it may be to do so. Chapter one identifies 12 assumptions GBV makes. One, I want to voice my values and act upon my values. By assuming this, it means that quote, just enough people need to feel this way in order to gain critical mass and therefore we enable a choice, a realistic choice for us to do. Two, I have voiced my values at some point in my past. We can all name times where we did or did not voice our values and must build the muscle to do it more effectively and frequently. Three, I can voice my values more often and more effectively. Back to muscle memory. It isn't just about the cognitive process of analyzing and creating the scripts though, but also about actually verbalizing it so that it becomes more natural. Role play, though not always everyone's favorite activity, is important. Four. It is easier for me to voice my values in some contexts than others. This one seemed the most obvious to me, but I loved the point made at the start of this assumption. GVV, quote, does not diminish the importance of selecting and developing organizational cultures and policies and incentives that encourage such choices. Five, I am more likely to voice my values if I've practiced how to respond to frequently encountered conflicts. There are common situations and reasons or rationalizations why we may or may not voice our values. However, the more we flex the muscle of doing so, the more automatically we will be able to do so in the future. Six, my example is powerful. Yes, it is, lead by example. Whether we believe someone will see or notice, someone always does, and our example can change someone else's response in the future. Seven, Although mastering and delivering responses to frequently heard rationalizations can empower others who share my views to act, I cannot assume I will know who those folks will be. You can only control yourself. Therefore, do the best you can, and scripts on how to voice your values for yourself are important, but remember, they may also positively impact others. Eight. The better I know myself, the more I can prepare to play to my strengths and, when necessary, protect myself from my weaknesses. This assumption stood out to me as something we can all take as an immediate action, not just as an assumption. Lean into the ways you best communicate and can more easily voice your values and script more of these situations. Nine, I am not alone. We are all here reading and listening together, so I would say that that is pretty accurate but for real, there are people internal to a conflict and external to it who can support your view, enabling you to voice your values. These allies are invaluable, but may, must also be sought out and built out. 10, although I may not always succeed, voicing and acting on my values is worth doing. The more you do it, the more confident you will be in doing so again, and the more likely you will be to become aware of ways you can do so effectively. Eleven. Voicing my values leads to better decisions. Concerns as to whether or not our values are right or wrong can silence our willingness to speak our perspectives. However, by flexing the muscle, we will test against others, strengthen certain areas, and seek out necessary information. Even if our position is incorrect, we will strengthen the decision-making process in the situation. 12. The more I believe it is possible to voice and act on my values, the more likely I will be to do so. We must reframe the situation from, quote, whether to voice our values to, quote, how can we voice our values? On to chapter two, which kicks off by defining values versus ethics. Ethics being external, as in rules or standards we must comply with, and values as an individual thing. Well, why not morals then? Well, the word morals suggests right versus wrong. Again, not the approach here. The word value is both a noun and a verb, something we have and something we want to do. When presented with a challenging situation, we may feel as though we have no choice in how we act and and then after the fact, feel as though we must justify our choice. We may not always speak in the way that we think of doing so traditionally, but we have a choice in doing so and we have to get to a place where we are confident in doing so. As we continue, we will learn how. There is the tale of two stories, an exercise. Most important here, act as though you always have a choice, always. Additionally, quote, we are neither as good nor as bad, neither as strong nor as weak as we may have assumed. Values can be used by anyone for good or for bad. Understanding that and keeping that in mind and keeping in mind who we want to be and that it is assumed that we want to voice our values, we should then recall a time when our values conflicted with what we were expected to do at work and when we did speak up. Ask yourself, what did you do? What was the impact? What motivated you to speak up and act? How satisfied were you? And what would have made it easier for you to do so? Now, think of a time where your values conflicted with what you were expected to do at work and you did not speak up. Ask yourself the same four questions. This exercise helps us to begin to identify enablers and disablers. Everyone's enablers and disablers are different and one is often the opposite or the lack thereof of the other. The following is a list of enablers and descriptions of a few of them that resonated with me. One, allies. Don't just engage in the Wall Street Journal test thinking about someone knowing about our decision, but actually engage in a dialogue about it with someone. Ask for what you want to hear and need to hear in a situation and find examples and understand how others have voiced their values in the past in situations that are similar. Two, selection and sequencing of audiences. Three, the critical importance of information. Four, questions not answers. Open with questions rather than arguments and assertions. This approach gives others in the situation the ability to reconsider rather than get defensive and can often uncover critical arguments we need to counter. Five, the importance of understanding the needs, fears and motivations of the audience. Six, incremental steps. Small wins are valuable and keep us sustained through challenges. There are often multiple steps that must occur over time to voice our values fully and see change. So we must notice the small steps to maintain our position with confidence. Seven, framing. Some examples that Dr. Gentili mentions are, quote, A disagreement that appears to throw the ethics of our audience into doubt is reframed as a learning dialogue wherein we are trying to uncover the true parameters of a possible decision. A win-lose situation is reframed through the use of argument and research as a win-win situation. Seemingly self-evident assumptions or truisms are reframed as debatable. Chapter four. Even when the situation we are experiencing is common in our industry or role, we still feel as though we never expected it to happen. We then think of it as something to, quote, just get through, when in actuality, it is something that happens often and we must face head on. By accepting these things happen often, we are able to take the emotion out of it and confidently deliver our values to the situation. We have normalized it and prepared for it ourselves. In doing so, we also normalize the stakes and feel as though our argument doesn't need to be bulletproof. Dr. Gentili states, quote, our choices come with no guarantees, and that is also true of our choice to voice and act on our values. By normalizing the idea that we must take risk to voice our values, we start to have more freedom in that decision-making process and begin to see those who put us in those situations of conflict, not as villains, but just like us. Chapter 5 discusses how we define our purpose and how that affects how we voice our values. While this helps us to voice our values, it may also complicate it in situations because then we see our choices and situations as areas we may have previously deferred to authority on. Now we have purpose, no matter the level or title, giving us more arguments when presenting our values. We are able to call upon our values as things we must use at some point, often frequently in our career, rather than a single moment when we are deeply challenged. This broader purpose is important to voice to others, but also to ourselves and can quote, offer an invitation that others may choose to accept to be working for something bigger and better, rather than simply asking them to make us feel better about ourselves. Next, Dr. Gentili continues sharing the toolkit with us as we explore how to play to our strengths. Gregory Deese and Peter Crampton argue that most people categorize themselves as idealists, pragmatists, or opportunists. Mary then states that the largest group is pragmatists who, quote, want to act on their values but do not wish to place themselves at a systematic disadvantage by doing so. For a pragmatist, it would then be important to view voicing our values as pragmatic rather than naive or idealistic. This also means that we need to play to the situation. For instance, if someone is convinced they are fearful of punishment, help them to see that fear as a way to serve a value rather than to make them not fearful. Knowing what enables and disables our voice allows us to tap into our power in any circumstance. Quote, because we are playing to our strengths and preferences, rather than trying to browbeat ourselves into doing something we are not comfortable with, we align what we think is right with who we think we are. Quote, the commitment here is to being more of who we already are rather than someone different. Now, it is true though that this self story we craft could just justify any decision we make then. However, emphasis and context is important and thinking about how we could use it if we wanted to act on our values is key here. Early in Chapter 7, we are alerted to the not-so-stark nature of voicing our values. It isn't that we can either stand up and take action or remain mute. A few observations are made. There are situations where voicing our values may work better than others, suggesting it is a learned skill. Second, we may tend to lean towards a certain situation to voice our values versus not, again, emphasizing the importance of practice so we can marry our strengths and comfort areas. Third, some contexts impact our likelihood to speak up. And last, there are things we can do to make it easier for us to voice our values. When we begin to see the practice of voicing our values as a story or even a narrative arc, we participate in a growth process and can see situations where we might have failed as places to learn. Through multiple stories up to this point in the book, Mary has given us examples of how people voice their values in different situations. To summarize all those stories would take a while, but there is part of a story here I want to mention, Baxter's story. Now I'm still not going to summarize that story, read the book if you want to hear her story and you haven't already, but I want to explore the enablers she identified for her ability to speak up that are different than other ones mentioned prior and different from topics deeply explored up to this point. First, mentors not allies and not just ones who are invested in you, but also ones whose example you want to follow. Second, self-created support system and sounding board. Third, do not assume opinions or preferences are orders. Think of these more as two-way communication and therefore a position that can be reconsidered. Fourth, form can be important as substance. Think in terms of me statements instead of you statements. And fifth, practice, which seems like something we have already discussed, but it is explored here more in the way of how we do it at different levels, whether junior or senior, understanding reasons you may or may not voice your values and how you can reframe those and practice doing it at any level, since there will never be a right level to take on values conflicts. At the start of chapter eight, Mary touches on something that Blair will mention later on in the podcast. In relation to corporate ethics and compliance training, Mary says, if the purpose of these discussions is to persuade people to behave ethically, even when their emotions are pushing them in a different direction, then we are engaging in a steep uphill battle. If, on the other hand, the real purpose of the conversation is to prepare folks to be able to do what they already want to do, although they fear it could be difficult to do so, then we are working with them rather than against the emotional grain And reframing our objective in this way allows us to appeal to the more positive and implementation-oriented predilections of our audience. So instead of the next corporate training your organization plans to host, consider building out these scripts, preparing for these situations, and practicing expressing them. The questions that are posed to consider when faced with a values conflict and ignite a conversation potentially for training are also the perfect example of easy changes to make in your program today. Add them to your code, post them in your code. Ask what is the action or decision we believe is right? What are the main arguments against this course that we are likely to encounter? What are the reasons and rationalizations we will need to address? What is at stake for the key parties, including those who disagree with us? And what's at stake for us? What are our most powerful and persuasive responses to the reasons and rationalizations we need to address? To whom should the argument be made? And in what context? Through all of this, we are making choice possible, and that is what GVV is all about. This way, when a common ethics dilemma comes up, a right versus right dilemma, such as truth versus loyalty or short-term versus long-term, we are able to recognize it and reframe it. Additionally, we can then start to script and identify the common arguments for these dilemmas we might face, such as the issue being expressed as expected or standard practice, that it is not material, that it is not my responsibility, or that I am doing it because I am loyal, all of which Mary then proceeds to help us argue against when we hear them. We can do this by thinking in the long run as well as the short run, considering the situation in a larger context, watching out for false dichotomies positioning yourself as an agent of continuous improvement rather than a source of complaint, pointing out addictive cycles that can cause greater pressures and risk considering who is an ally as opposed to an adversary, assuming the target is composed of pragmatists and is looking for ways to make it feasible for them to do the right thing. Then just before she wraps up the chapter, Mary provides us with a list of decision tendencies and how to handle them. One, Obedience to authority, diffuse it by naming it. Two, social proof, build a coalition of people who think differently than you. Three, false consensus effect, assume nothing. Four, over optimism, question it and put something positive in its place. Five, self serving bias, generate and support alternative interpretations of the situation. Six, framing, not just negatives avoided, but the positive benefits. Seven, process. Realize it isn't about changing the system all at once. Eight, cognitive dissonance. Appeal to prior decisions someone has made. Nine, sunk costs and loss aversion. Try to provide a way of viewing a decision as already having paid off so when it is unethical, they can move on. Ten, the tangible, the abstract, and the time delay traps. Use stories and relate to the audience. And finally, chapter nine, Chapter nine ties the book together with a nice bow, laying out what GVV framework really looks like. Values, choices, normality, purpose, self-knowledge and self-image and alignment, voice, reasons and rationalizations make up this framework for voicing our values. Though the arguments will not be perfect by creating them, practicing them, encouraging them and prioritizing them, we are more likely to speak our values when faced with a values conflict. Rather than thinking about the risks associated with voicing our values, think about the risks associated with not doing so. We have the choice to speak up. We have the courage to do so. And at the heart of it, we all want to. Now, I have the privilege of introducing Mary Gentile to listeners today and give us more information on the Giving Voice to Values framework and book. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We are really excited to get the opportunity to dive into giving voice to values, not just a book, but a framework, a way that the industry has been impacted and really looking forward to learning a little bit more about you and the book. So if you can start off by just telling listeners a little bit about you and giving voice to values as a whole.
1: Sure. Thank you, Lauren. It's it's my pleasure to to join you today for this conversation as well. So um, I am uh, currently a faculty member at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, um, but I spend pretty much all my time uh, uh, working with Giving Voice to Values or GVV as I call it. Um, My background is I spent 10 years at Harvard Business School where I helped to create and teach in their first required curriculum around ethics and values and leadership. Um, I spent five years at Babson College and I've been a senior advisor to the Aspen Institute Business and Society program for for several decades. Um, And, you know, giving voice to values grew frankly out of those experiences. It grew out of my frustration, frankly, (laughs) with the way that we were teaching about uh, ethics in business schools, MBA programs, and also the way we often trained about it in corporate settings. Um, And uh, so I like to say that Giving Voice to Values is an innovative approach to values-driven leadership development. And that if you don't remember anything else about what we're going to talk about today, that you should remember that Giving Voice to Values asks and answers a different question. So typically when we talk about ethics and compliance, um, values in organizational settings, we ask the question, what's the right thing to do in any particular situation? Yeah. That's an important question, of course. For sure. Uh, it's, it's one that I'm sure that your listeners already spend time on. Um, but what GVV, Giving West Values, does is asks and answers a different question, which is once you know what the right thing to do is, how can you get it done effectively? Uh, how can you do it successfully? What do you need to say? What data do you need? Um, How do you need to present it? What will the pushback be? We call those the reasons and rationalizations. And then what will you say? So it's really less a focus on building awareness and teaching analysis, which is important. You know, learn the rules, the regulations, the corporate codes of conduct, and more a focus on action. Um, So I would say it's the third A. You know, you probably already (laughs) do awareness and analysis. This is now action. I love that. I think one of the things that you just said is
0: is going to lead me to a really interesting question that you talk about these corporate settings, you talk about ethics and compliance and how it's taught in business schools. There is so much about society and regulation that dictates the way that we view ethics and compliance and values, really. And now, as we're thinking about it from the GVB perspective, if I am a... a a leader in my ethics and compliance organization and i'm looking at my corporate code of conduct my training my the things that my program has built out over the years what what are the first steps that i can take to action gvv
1: right so you know what you probably already do is communicate the codes the rules the regulations in a variety of ways you know online, um, plaques on the wall, (laughs) training programs, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, sign a code. Um, You know, you probably do all of that already. And you may also well give illustrations of scenarios, situations that, you know, you invite people to think about, is is this a violation of the code or not? Or would, would this be a violation of the relevant regulation or not? So you probably already do all of that. The thing that GVV would then add is say, okay, so let's say this is a scenario where, where it is a violation. Okay, now let's spend some time actually literally prescripting and rehearsing, action planning, um, peer coaching about how we're gonna deal with that, what we're gonna say and do. And there are many ways to build it into a training program. But the other thing that I always think is, is, is also important, and frankly, even more important, is um, when managers begin to realize that they can use this simple reframe in any conversation, in any corporate meeting. You know, you're discussing a a new strategy for launching a new product or service or reaching out to a new demographic or, um, you know, opening a new facility, and there are going to be issues that arise, and you just ask a different question. So instead of, you know, just, is this okay or not? You can ask how can we do this in a way that is in fact going to be consistent with the code and the values. I call it the giving voice to values thought experiment. So mm-hmm. I don't really yeah. ask people, what would you do? Instead we ask them, what if we wanted to do it this way? How could we get it done? And we yeah. know yeah. from the research that that actually triggers a more innovative and creative response in the people you're working with. Which. I find really fascinating because
0: it's so easy to assume that these things are things that just happen in training settings, and that's not the case. These are things that we take outside of training and and do every single day and build that muscle and start to work on that muscle rather than just using it once or twice, once a year, every quarter for training. And so what what brought me to reading your book was having seen it mentioned in blind spots which was the mm-hmm. last book we talked about and the, the idea that there are all these informal structures that exist, the, um, the informal is that culture, the, um, the way that people speak to each other, and the formal are the code of conduct, the trainings, pieces like that. And I think what GVV does, and correct me if you think differently, but I feel like it really brings the two together. It takes this informal structure that exists with culture and values and really puts it on top of those formal structures to make those formal structures come to life. And there's something really impactful about that. So that leads me to my next question, which is around how people have done it really successfully. So it's about building the muscle, it's about asking the question differently, but it's a hard thing to do. That's not easy to pick up and change. So. You've worked with lots of different organizations, lots of individuals. Talk to me a little bit about those who have been successful and how they've done it successfully.
1: Yeah, I've worked with a lot of different organizations at different levels in the—I mean, at different sizes of the organizations, as well as different levels. And and what I try to do is to be very, very flexible. You know, it's not like I, I want to have this sort of oh, here's a product that you buy off the shelf and use. Yeah. Um, I really want to uh, share the approach, and then work with individuals to figure out how will this work within your organization, within your culture. Um, and one of the things that, I, one of the experiences I've had that's been interesting is that sometimes it, you know, sometimes it's the ethics and compliance people who will reach out to me. Sometimes it's senior management that will reach out to me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's um, the leadership and learning uh, groups within organizations that will reach out to me. Um, but one of the things that's been kind of interesting to me is that sometimes in the ethics and compliance uh group when they reach out, there may even be sort of a sense of nervousness about this you i'm know? sure um, because are are we are we really going to be um, you know not reporting things that we should be reporting because we're telling people to handle them themselves? Or yeah. um, are we not going to get the information we need in the comp- Ethics and Compliance Office in order to maintain w- what we're trying to do? So there can be some sort of anxiety. I had an interesting experience that I think illustrates how this can work. When I worked with, with Unilever a few years ago, um, they had reached out to me because they wanted to, it was actually their leadership and learning group that reached out to me because they wanted to um, maybe run a pilot with one of their developing country um, offices uh, because they thought they would see that because they're, you know, they're based in the UK, certain set of values and rules and norms. And yeah. you know sometimes it didn't always feel like it was a good fit. <laughs> yep, and absolutely. so they, they issued an invitation to a, a number of leaders and said, who would like to be a pilot site? And the, the head of their Nigeria office said that, that they could run the pilot there. So I, you know, I, I I spent some time down in Lagos, and I, you know, gathered stories, and we kind of customized customized the GVV experience, and then I went back a few months later after we did that, and and trained a group of sort of high potential middle managers that they were calling change champions, who were then going to share the GVV approach curriculum that we had developed with the rest of the organization. Mm-hmm. We also used an interactive online program as preparation for this. So we it was multifaceted, and I can explain that if you're interested. But what I want the point I wanted to make was that the head of global ethics was a little um, concerned about well what were we really doing, you know? And it came out of leadership and learning rather than out of ethics. And you know there are rules that we have to you know be consistent with and. So we invited the head of global ethics and compliance to come and sit in on the program, and even to do a a presentation where she reminded them all of what the rules were, and where they could find them, and what the norms were. But then she began to understand that what the GVV process then did was it was what I call post-decision making, where we would share scenarios that we had actually identified as actual types of challenges you encounter, in a consumer products firm like Unilever when you're operating in Nigeria. And then they were post-decision making so that the protagonist would say, so I know this is not appropriate, I know this is not right, um, but how am I going to speak to my customer who's pressuring me or my colleague who's pressuring me or my manager who's pressuring me and what will I do and how will I frame this in a way that will be consistent? And um, when, she saw that, she actually understood the value of this and actually invited me to come and share it with uh, in the UK with the heads of ethics and compliance for all their global units around the world. Because what they began to realize is that this actually expanded their role in an interesting way. They were no longer just the police, they were actually, they could be advisors, they could be coaches, they could um, be enabling a more true culture change Um, what a great
0: shift that's incredible
1: yeah yeah yeah. and we saw the same thing at lockheed martin in fact they were the first corporation to implement this and then they actually had me come back and spend time with their enc officers um, some of whom are permanent and some of whom rotate from different line positions because they were seeing we have this this expanded role, you know. And it's great because they, they get even more information because they hear about things not necessarily after it's crossed a line, but yeah. when someone thinks it might cross a line and can we stop that? <laughs> you know? So that that's really interesting. And
0: I I'd be curious, do you know if After the implementation of GVV and any of the organizations you've worked with, if they've actually seen an increase in number of reports, an increase of of visibility into risk in their organization due to the fact that people feel like they are capable and uh, uh, are equipped to
1: voice those values and talk about those things. Have you seen that happen? So, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to measure and then draw a causal link because, Correct. you know, just because I took a GBV course and then this <laughs> happened and I proved that it was because of the GVV course, you know, maybe <laughs> something else happened, you know. So I, I, I have a difficult time saying we have the empirical evidence, but... That said, I know you're going to be speaking to, uh, to Blair Marks from Lockheed Martin, and you can talk to her about this. You know, they do gather data. They do uh, employee surveys. And, and what I've understood from them is that the, the number of issues that get raised, in fact, has gone up, you know, but also in line with what we were saying a moment ago, one of the things that they've told me is that they feel that, that people are bringing issues to them earlier on and saying, you know, but I want to handle this, but will you help me figure out an effective way to handle it? Um, which does give them that kind of coaching role. But she can probably answer that in more detail because she's the one who has that data. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I can only imagine how
0: different so many of my conversations would go with ethics and compliance leaders if they knew about things prior to them happening, if they weren't yeah. considered the police, right? That, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just so impactful so
1: and you know that has an implication not just for the ethics and and compliance officers but for managers you know um similarly when we were doing this work at unilever i remember um just shortly before i was supposed to go back to Lagos for the actual training after we created the custom program um they called me up and they said um You know, I was going to be working just with these middle managers, the change champions, Um, but they said, you know, we'd like to bring in the entire senior leadership team in the in the Nigeria office, which was about maybe ten people, um, and have them attend the entire program. Originally, I was just going to do an hour or two with them, socializing them. Now, of course, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, this is kind of the holy grail. You're delighted you know, that they wanted to bring the senior leadership team in. Yeah. But I was also pretty nervous about it because I wasn't sure how this was going to go with them in the same room with the, you know. But it was really interesting what happened because we had them all go through our online pre-training program for a mm-hmm. few weeks before I went down. And then, so when I got there for the the two days of training, they already were familiar with GVV because they'd done this online interactive program. And then, you know, um, we did a bunch of the exercises. And when we got to the GVV scenarios, which were based on Unilever Nigeria examples. Um, so we put all the middle manager change champions at their own tables and we gave them the usual giving voice to values assignment. We gave them the, a scenario that was relevant to Unilever Nigeria. And we asked them, how could you raise this issue if you knew it was the right thing? um, What would you do? What would you say? What would you anticipate? But then we put the senior leaders at their own tables. There were maybe two tables full of them. We gave them the same scenario, but we asked them a different question. We said, um, how could someone, how could a middle manager bring this issue to you in a way that would make it easier for you to respond appropriately? Um, so they weren't being cast as the villains. They were actually trying to think about how how would I hear this, you know? Um, what would make it possible for me to hear this? How could I overcome my own resistance to this? Because it's never good news, you know? And, um, and so there were two things happening then. So the first thing that was happening is the, the usual giving voice to values rehearsal was that they were rehearsing trying to hear these things you know they were rehearsing together with each other trying to hear these things okay but then the second thing that happened is when we bring them back to to the debrief together this sort of natural social contracting started to happen you know where the senior leaders were saying things like Well, if you actually made an appointment, if you didn't grab me in the hall and dump this on me, and if you actually brought some evidence or some data, not just, oh, I don't feel right about this, you know, and if you actually came in with some ideas about, you know, uh, how we might address this, sort of a joint problem solving rather than casting me as the villain who has to take care of everything, even if they weren't practical solutions, you know, it just is a different relationship for the conversation. And then the middle managers were saying, well, if you didn't kill the messenger, you know, and if you actually thanked me for doing this, (laughs) and if you, to the degree that was, you know, viable, given confidentiality and other issues, if you kind of kept me in the loop, so I felt that you actually had taken it seriously, you know. And so they ended up doing this, and I had not intended this, but as a result of this session, they decided to create something that they called the the GVV um, contractor, the Giving Voice to Values deal, where they sort of had a town meeting where senior leadership said, we will commit to these three things if you commit to these three things, you know, and they all kind of signed the deal. And so it was acknowledging that this is a conversation, you know, this is not police force. This is not um, simply a set of rules. This is a conversation and a problem solving um, activity. So rather than presenting things as, you know, this is wrong and you can't do anything, present things as how can we address the goals that we share without necessarily crossing the lines that we don't want to cross.
0: I, I love how that came together, and I'm sure it doesn't always come together quite that No, well. no, it was a, but that's a thrill. <laughs> that's amazing, and it sounds like they have now taken their training, their GVB training, and that framework, and, and continued forward with it, and I think that's that's another huge thing that I was thinking about as I was reading is that there there are things that we can do to implement. We can bring in Mary, and Mary can help us run GVV. We can start to uh, to bring this framework to the way that we train, the way that we talk about values and ethics and compliance. But maintaining it is a whole different thing. Maintaining any new initiative is hard. And we talk so often about how things are ripped and replaced all the time. And that's scary. And that, to me, is a huge hesitation, a huge roadblock for many leaders who could read this and say, I want to, but I can't because of. So if, if we're looking to implement, we're looking, we're looking at giving voice to values and saying, this is what I want to do. And I need to be able to understand how I can maintain it. What do, you, what do you tell listeners?
1: Yeah. So, again, I think there's a couple different things to think about there. I mean, you're absolutely right. And the, the, you know, the core ideas and the research behind giving ways to values are about rehearsal, about practice, about peer coaching, about creating what I call a moral muscle memory, and kind of creating a habit, you know, so that this comes more naturally. And we know that's supported by the, the behavioral psychology and even the neuroscience around creating these neural pathways. But that said, that means it's not just something you do once and you learned how to do it. You know, I learned how to do algebraic equations, you know, and you don't need to learn it again. It's, it's something you, you practice. And so I think the organizations that do this well are organizations who, in, in both their, their regular training, whatever they have, reinforce this. So, for example, Lockheed does a training every year. They use different scenarios every year. They use video scenarios. Um, and they try and focus on what's relevant, you know, some things are evergreen issues, but some things, you know, are new because of technology or privacy or whatever the, the issue is. Um, but they always try and go not just to helping you understand, you know, where the lines are, but they always give them an opportunity to then think about, so how are you going to raise this in the particular context. And they do that with their videos. So there's this kind of rehearsal. And they have other reminders throughout the year. Um, You know, I I think another way of that sort of drumbeat is, as I was saying earlier, you know, if managers start to become comfortable with using these skills in the way they have regular conversations. Yeah. You know, it's a set of skills. It's a it's a set of, you know, just a different way to frame the question. I always tell people, if you don't remember anything else from giving voice values, I hope you'll walk away feeling like you, you have more choices than you thought you did. Um, because what we know is that when people encounter conflicts we react emotionally and then we rationalize after the fact why it was the right or the only thing to do and so the only way to rewire that that connection that automatic unconscious connection is through rehearsal through practice and so you know it can be just asking the what if question in your meetings and it can also be in your regular training so I think it has to be reinforced in different ways. It doesn't mean a whole brand new kind of (laughs) program every year. You know, it just means being sure that you integrate that, that frame, that reframe. And actually that's, you know, you said, well, you can bring Mary in. I mean, I actually see giving voice to values as an idea and I'm happy to help people implement it, but I don't think anyone owns an idea. And I think that, you know you don't necessarily need me <laughs> you know i tried to design it that way i wasn't trying to create a, a consulting business i was trying to really reframe the way we try and move people toward values driven action
0: which just goes to show the importance of this framework that it isn't something that that requires someone else to come present it to you but it, it is who we are that the, the first assumption that we want to voice our values, that we want to have that capability, we want to give ourselves more choices, is is within all of us, and it doesn't it's require someone to come. Exactly, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily require this whole training program, but rather just putting forth the effort for it. So, I have uh, two more questions for you. Uh, we're, we've talked a lot about how it happens at the organizational level, what, what you do at the organizational level. And as I'm reading this, part of what I'm thinking is I want to personally voice my values more often. And I, I read the story, um, I, think, I think the woman's name was B- uh, Baxter, and how, or Foley, how, how they were able to voice their values to their leaders, bring up those concerns, and how it enhanced their career. And I think that, to me, is as impactful to individuals reading this as we as it is at the organizational level and so if i'm not in a training situation with an organization if i am not sitting at the dinner table and talking about this framework with my family how would you suggest an individual do this on on a one-on-one individual basis
1: yeah uh you mean how could they develop this this capacity how do you start to do this individually yeah. So there's there's so many different ways to do it. I mean, yeah. Obviously, one way is read the book. There's lots of examples in there, and it kind of gives people a set of tools. Another way is there's a there's a MOOC on Coursera, which is is pretty easy to go through. It's a series of about two dozen little short four minute videos and some exercises. You can audit it for free, <laughs> you know. And Amazing. I think at this point we've had over fifteen thousand people do it, and wow. you know it's it's really. Um, I think a nice way for individuals, I get emails from people saying, well, I just found this course on Coursera and I really found it helpful and I'd like to now share it. I'll have to Um, link that for listeners. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a similar, there's a more interactive uh, um, social cohort based version of this, a little bit more bells and whistles through a company called Nomadic. And they have the Nomadic Academy and it's, it's very inexpensive to just sign up. I think it's $15 a month and you can go through the, the five modules, you know. So, you know, there are lots of ways to do that. And then if you don't want to read the book and you don't want to go out <laughs> and do a book and you don't want to do the interactive module, I mean, really the idea is look at the times in your life when you have effectively persuaded someone of something and try and figure out what works for you has it been, and it may not have even been an ethical issue, but, you know, when you've sort of moved someone, are you best in writing? Like, did you have to write a letter and you explained it all? Or are you best in a one-on-one sort of conversation over a glass of wine? Or were you best when you were like, had a group of, of colleagues, a coalition sort of allies, where you made a case to, you know, whoever it was, your your principal or your organizational leader or, you know, whatever level you are, your family. Did you get your siblings together to make a case with your parents, you know? Um, And, and think about what worked for you, because I think a lot of times people assume that the way that they're going to do this is that they have to, um, you know, speak truth to power and (laughs) have this defining moment and moral courage and fall on their sword and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I always say no. Look at how you're effective. You know, I mean, I'm effective mostly by asking questions, yeah. <laughs> and so I used to think that wasn't good enough. And now I realize that's really powerful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because sometimes people will try to answer my question, and it means they end up reframing their answer. Yeah. So, so you know, play to your strength and just sort of see it as this is something that that I can do. You know, if I take a little bit of time to practice and reverse and anticipate what I think the objections will be so I don't get emotional about it, so I can kind of normalize it.
0: I love all of the tools that, that you present in this framework, that it isn't, it isn't just, here's what we want it to look like and here's what we want the end result to be, but here, here are some specific ways to get there. There's everything from reframing all the way to playing to your strengths and, and so many pieces, which we've talked about in the intro to this podcast. And the last question that I want to ask you is is really impacting the whole organization, um, impacting the whole business environment, impacting the individual and impacting the world. This framework, the, the idea of voicing your values is something that far extends past the working environment. It extends past the dinner table and your interactions on the street. And it's something that matters. And so as you think about the experience over your, um, your teaching of GBV and of uh, writing the book and since writing the book, how has it changed the industry? How has it changed ethics and compliance and and the way that corporate values are built? And, and has, has that side of it changed
1: the way that you view GBV now too? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So- I tend to think that you know GVV caught on much faster and wider than I ever anticipated, and it, it's it's still growing even more rapidly now. And we're starting to reach into other professions, you know, healthcare and law and engineering and the military, and you know, so and and it's literally been used on all seven continents. So you know, we do we've been doing that, and I think um, I think part of it is because it it was not just GVV. It was like there was a moment, you know, where a lot of things came together. Yeah. So there was, you know, was increasing, intention, uh, increasing attention to um, research on neurosciences, brain plasticity, creating new neural pathways. There's increasing research and attention to behavioral psychology and behavioral ethics. Um, and, and then there was, in fact, GVV. And I think there are others who are doing similar kinds of things. Um, And so I think there was this kind of moment, you know, where all of that stuff came together. And, you know, much as I'm wedded to GVB, I feel like if somebody feels more comfortable with a different approach, that's fine. As long as it kind of has these ideas in it about the rehearsal, the practice, the creating the habit, making it more natural, having it be less about sort of thou shall not and more Mm -hmm. about can do, you know, rather than preaching and then pretending we can do it. Let's start from the assumption that that many of us, even most of us may like may want to act on our values, but we just don't believe it's possible. And so let's start from that position where we're actually helping people to feel like they can be more of who they already wanted to be, rather than trying to change them. And my assumption is that that ends up changing the whole environment, because what happens then is if more of these people who would like to act on their values, but don't necessarily believe they can, and maybe even the people who already try to act on their values, but do it really incompetently, (laughs) if more more of those people, you know, by saying, oh, you're horrible, you know, if more of those people learn to do this approach which which doesn't mean that the person you're persuading has to be cast as a villain i mean you kind of give them an (laughs) off-ramp you kind of help them you know move to a different place then that changes the water that the the so-called opportunists the people who really don't care it changes the the water they're swimming in and the calculus they do in terms of what they can get away with because they can't rely on the same level of silent complicity from everyone else. So I think that actually does change the larger system, but it changes it not necessarily simply by punishing the bad actors, I mean, some of that has to happen, but it, punishes, it, it, but it changes the system by enabling all those people who, you know, if they could, would <laughs> like to do this. And so I think that changes the larger culture I don't attribute it entirely to GVV. As I say, I think a lot of things have come together. But the one thing I will say is that even with some of this research that comes out of um, behavioral ethics, I think there's been some problems with it. I, I, I wrote an essay a little while ago on how GVV, I think, is the ideal pedagogy for behavioral ethics because a lot of that research, you know, it's like everybody lies. You know, it's it's all this research about how we think we're good, but we're not. You know, and all of that. And yeah, and I think that it, it, although well intended, I think often that can end up in reinforcing a sense of futility. And so what, what I tried to do is to use what we've learned from behavioral ethics and behavioral psychology to actually help us figure out how to frame responses that people will actually be able to hear. So if we know, for example, that people tend to discount the future and overweight the short term, go ahead and make the long-term argument. It's important and it's a big one for ethics, but also try and think of some short-term reason why it's in your benefit to act this way, or it will hurt you to not act ethically, even if it's not your major argument. It helps shift people's brains, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, playing to and your you strengths can... and theirs. Exactly. you know, And you can look at all of the different kinds of um, behavioral biases and decision-making biases that we've identified, and all of them, they, they have some, some opportunities as well as some risks in them. And so try and figure out, how can I use them? Because they're not in and of themselves bad. You know, They developed for evolutionarily effective reasons, and we're just trying to use them in the service of doing the ethical thing.
0: Well, Mary, I am just so beyond appreciative of your time today. <laughs> I know listeners were really excited to hear from you, and so many of us have read the book or had it sitting on our shelf, and now have gotten an opportunity to understand it on a deeper level. Uh, next, we'll be interviewing Blair Marks and understanding how she has implemented it at Lockheed Martin and what that looks like for them. But um, as we move forward from here, I, I personally have learned a lot and am thinking a lot about how I want to voice my values and the ways that I can lean into this toolkit. So um, we, are, we are deeply appreciative of the work that you do in the industry and look forward to the opportunity to talk with you again in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much, Lauren. It's been a lot of fun,
0: so anytime. <laughs> Wonderful. Next, we will be joined by Blair Marks. Blair, thank you so much for joining us here today. Listeners are really excited to dive into GVV and understand how you've implemented the, flame, the framework over at Lockheed Martin, because it isn't just a theoretical framework, it's something that's actually being done at large organizations like yours. So uh, really excited, thank you so much. Uh, would love to learn a little bit about you before we get started. Sure,
2: Lawrence. So, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to talk about what we call voicing our values. It's our adaptation of uh, Mary Gentili's giving voice to values. We are are completely sold on the methodology, and we've been applying the framework for over a decade now at Lockheed Martin. So, um, as as I think I've mentioned to you, when Mary asks us to talk about it, we're always delighted to share what we've learned, and um, and. And I've been working in the ethics organization really for for longer than that um, and have now responsibility for entire ethics programs. So, yes, all of the training, all of the communications and and everything that we do to create our values-based culture, uh, but also the investigations, the the, um, giving advice to employees when they have questions, all of the aspects of an ethics program. This is the centerpiece of what we do though. Our annual ethics awareness training is just absolutely key to
0: what we do and how we do it. That's awesome and I love that you framed it as this is the centerpiece of what you do. When you think about the GVV or voicing your values program that that you've created, what initiated you wanting to implement this framework at all at Lockheed? way back when what
2: predates me a little bit in this role i i was not the the uh, involved in the decision to implement it but i came in very early on right after that decision had been made we have been doing annual ethics awareness training at lockheed martin since the corporation was formed from the merger of the then lockheed corporation and martin marietta corporation every employee every year one hour And we do it in leader-led sessions, so you're you're with your work group, and we think that this is just absolutely critical to everyone in the corporation understanding what do we mean by our values, what do we mean by applying those values, and what kinds of things might look like crossing the line, and what do you do about it when you run into those those situations, those values-based conflicts and dilemmas. So... Before we implemented the GVV framework, the focus of that training tended to be on recognizing when somebody was crossing the line or when they were about to do something wrong. But what Dr. Gentili hit on was, okay, most people know that because we do other training, we do compliance training, and we remind people, and we have controls built into our systems. But but what happens is they hit the point where they're they know there's something wrong and then, okay, now what do I do about it to prevent it or, or to call attention to it? And what, what happened was we recognized that this was an opportunity for a really powerful shift in the thinking and in the training that we do to give our employees the skills that they need to address those values conflicts and those ethical dilemmas
0: and to take action when they see that something's wrong. So it's really a shift. I found one of the most impactful pieces for me about reading the book was that I felt that I was given tools to handle these problems, that as I was thinking about my life the way that I personally am voicing my values, that I could look and say, okay, here's how I can do this again. Here's how I could do it differently. And that's something really cool, but it's something that's challenging, I feel like, to implement in trainings, especially when you have an hour, maybe a couple hours throughout the year with your employees. So how, how are you doing this with your employees?
2: Well, we started with the annual training, the one-hour session, and revamped it. So my predecessor in training, uh, as far as the person who was responsible for the training, took Mary's framework, and he Lockheed Martinized it. So he, he took it, and with her permission, everything done with her permission, created what we call our voicing our values techniques. And so those are, and it's easy, it's ask questions, obtain data, talk to others, and reframe the issue. And put the framework in, into those four action-oriented things that you can do. And so what we do then is we create scenarios, and they're video-based, so we go film uh, these situations that could happen or maybe have happened in the workplace, and we set up the ethical dilemma. We set up the compliance issue. We set up the interpersonal conflict, and then we stop and we have a conversation and say, okay what could the characters do? Or what did you see them do well and not do well? And we varied the way that we've handled that discussion over the years, so it stays fresh. This is our attempt, um, Mary talks about um, scripting and rehearsing. Yeah. And so it's, we have on occasion tried to say, okay, put yourself in the the character's place. And if you're them, what would you do? and what would you say and who would you talk to but every year that's that's kind of the framework so the details of it may change but we're giving people real situations that they're going to face and then asking them to apply these techniques and talk about how they would do it and what's really interesting every year is people come back to us with well we saw this oh by the way we provide a leader's guide so we we give the leaders who are running the sessions talking points for Right? Where were the ask questions opportunities? Where were the reframing opportunities? Where was something that was just irredeemable and it's got to be reported because it's a violation <laughs> and you know there's just no two ways yeah. about it? But every year our employees come back with, well, what about this and, and what about that? And people see other things. And, and so it becomes a very rich conversation about real scenarios and what do you do about them.
0: I think it's so impactful and and important to hear that employees are engaging with this, that they're they're actually involved in those rich conversations because I feel like so often trainings fall flat. You sit in a room and someone acts something out and you're supposed to talk about it. But to hear that the Lockheed Martin employees are actually diving into this and bringing bringing their full self to this training is really empowering. Now, it's it's great that it works all the time, but I'm sure there are challenges. So I'd be curious from you what roadblocks have you encountered, whether it's currently or in implementing it at the start.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, if you're trying to roll out training to more than a hundred thousand people, <laughs> you're always going to have a challenge or two. Just the the logistics of getting it to everyone. Um, and over the years, uh, we've we've transitioned, and now I'll go back to the earlier training, even before we adopted this methodology. Once upon a time, there were board games that were used for the annual training, and there were newspapers that were created, and there were uh, VHS tapes of the wow. series, and more recently, we had been using DVDs, and what's really wonderful is now pretty much everybody's online. One way or another, we can get them to uh, content All online. All connected. So, you know, no more shipping all over the world, these these, uh, boxes of things. So that's obviously a challenge. I think one of the really big challenges is making sure that there's something there that is relevant for everyone. So what we do is we film six scenarios every year currently, and that'll cover things that are based on the factory floor that may be more relevant to the people who are dealing with Issues of overseas business, like um, international trade compliance, for example, comes to mind, or facilitating payment comes to mind. Um, People who work in our engineering environments and our finance and business operations organizations. So we try to frame enough variation in the scenarios that you're always going to find something that's relevant to you, no matter what work group you're in. And we let the leaders choose which of those six cases they're going to use, and they'll use two or three of them every year. So, you know, depending on the year, there may be something that more people use than others, but we, we try to make sure that they've got flexibility. Um, so you, So you get past the people sitting there going, this has nothing to do with me. Why do I care? Because there's always something, even if it's an interpersonal conflict that they can talk about, um, even if the specific scenario isn't something that they would deal with in their uh, their everyday work. So I think think that is one of the really big potential roadblocks that we manage just by providing the variety. Um, And then I don't know that it was a barrier or a roadblock, but but it was a realization that we had after the first year we did the training where we had identified the four techniques, and we rolled it out, we said, well, wait a minute, sometimes, as I mentioned, there are things that you have to report. It doesn't matter. Even if you think that you could get the point across, if somebody, as a defense contractor, if they have mischarged their time on a contract, you you can't not do something about it. So, we added a take action kind of overarching um, theme, and then, added report violations as, I wouldn't call it a technique, but a, hey folks, you got to do that. So um, yeah, and, and that's been pretty consistent now for the last nine years of the training. I think we've had to take action and report violations.
0: So on that note, there's, there's something that Mary had brought up around the the concern sometimes that if, if you're gonna implement GVV, that then as a ethics and compliance leader, you're not gonna get those reports in because everyone's just gonna talk about it and handle it on their own. They're gonna handle it in with those conversations. And what you're saying is you brought in that taking action piece to it and, and you, you're still encouraging those reports and making that an important part of the program. So talk to me, have you seen any of the the numbers change. So have you seen that since implementing that you've actually seen more cases and and more people speaking up. So have we seen changes
2: in the numbers? Yes we have. And here's just at a at a very high level. Since inception, so we went back and looked at our baseline year, which was 2010 before we started this. And now if I compare to that, we do a metric of cases per thousand employees every year. And then other what we would call non-case activity or some companies call guidance requests per thousand employees the cases are down but the guidance is up and our substantiation rate on the cases so if we do investigate something that's up and our anonymous rate is down now now the way that That we interpret that is that employees are asking for help to resolve things on their own, so guidances are up, and when they bring us a case, something that really does need to be investigated that they can't handle on their own, that's more likely to be something substantive and therefore more likely to be substantiated, and that's what we think we're seeing in the numbers. Now, I'll be honest, I can't attribute all of that to GDV because we've obviously been doing a lot of other communication
0: and education, but we do think it's a primary driver of the change. That is so powerful. And, and that's what listeners are wanting to hear. They want to understand not that this is a framework where we can all talk about our values at work, but what does that do for my numbers? What does that do for the ability for me to, as an ethics and compliance leader, protect my business and really elevate my, my visibility into risk as well? Now- okay. As you're thinking about year over year and, and what this is doing for for your employees, I'd be curious to hear not only how you're seeing it come up in those annual trainings, but if you're hearing that people are talking about this during their week over week experiences as well, is this, is this something that has really been ingrained in who they are as Lockheed Martin employees as well?
2: You know, I think... Well, I think the answer to that is yes, but I'm remembering the first time that I heard somebody in a general conversation talking about, let me reframe that for you. And I was like, (laughs) yes, it makes its way into the vernacular. And, you know, it's it's just after you hear it over and over again and you have that discussion, um, you you start thinking in terms of, all right do I have all the information that I could have? If not, what's available? Where do I get it? Who else can I ask? Who can I talk to? Who can give me advice? And so you start thinking in in those terms. And what we've done is it's not just the once a year training. We started with that, but then we rolled it into our code of conduct. And initially what we did, we had a section in the code that was warning signs. If you hear somebody say this, You know, little red flags ought to go off in your head. Now, we actually added a more of a section in our code of conduct with the techniques. You'll see the techniques pop up in our Integrity Minutes, our mini soap opera series that we run three times a year, um, that we're now on the 50th of those, so we've been doing them for a very long time, and people love them. Uh, A quarter to a third of our workforce just voluntarily go watch them. Um, whenever we release them. And, and so that's great reinforcement of the, the techniques as well. We don't, you know, every episode doesn't have it, but sometimes we'll reinforce. We've had things like um, one of our, our teams rolled out a tune, a cartoon with animated superheroes wearing the techniques on their on their shirts. So this I was, you know, misobtained data and Mr. Ask Questions or something like that. And so you'll see it pop up in other places and it's really just building and reinforcing that awareness and, you know, sometimes having fun with it, but again, always coming back. And the most recent thing, uh, um, as we talk about things like growth mindset in general and where we want to go for the future as a corporation, um, I just recently did a piece where I tied growth mindset to these techniques because these techniques create the environment where people can grow Absolutely. where they can ask questions where they where they feel free to go talk to other people so we look for all those connections with everything else that we're doing and reinforce it that way
0: yeah i mean as i'm as i was reading it, it for me it was more ha- thinking about it on a personal level how do i bring this to my personal life and and i think that's what's so powerful about the way that you're describing it being done at Lockheed Martin is that it truly is not just an organizational push, not a business push, but a push for the individuals as well. You think about growth mindset, that's, that is for individuals as well. And there's something really powerful there. Now- you mentioned adding on some, some new videos, that there is uh, the, the new pieces of the framework, um, the, the voicing your values um, aspects that you have built out specific for Lockheed Martin. How else have you continuously improved this framework at Lockheed?
2: One of the things we did, and it wasn't a modification to the framework itself, but we added it to our all employee survey, our census survey, on culture and ethics. So we jointly do a survey every two years with our HR partners. And as many companies do, and you're looking at all aspects, we've always asked a series of questions related to ethics and compliance. And we realized that what we were asking was a series of, part of that was a series of questions that said, have you observed misconduct? Yes or no? If yes, did you report it? We didn't ask, if you didn't report it, what did you do about it? Now we do. So now we have, you know, there's, and and then we also ask questions about, and what did you see? So we're collecting data on the kinds of misconduct, and then, you know, we can do all the analytics. But what was very interesting is in in this, we're about to go into our third cycle of asking that series of questions is is getting a sense of what did you resolve it on your own yes or no or did you do nothing so now we can differentiate between I reported it I fixed it on my own I didn't do anything about it and if you if you did resolve it on your own okay how did you do that so did you did you talk to someone else to get perspective did you explain to people what was wrong so were you asking questions? Were you reframing? Were you obtaining data? So we're tying our insight survey, our employee survey results to the techniques, which over time we're hoping will inform, all right, where are we not getting through? Where do we need to beef it up? Where do we need to reinforce it? And where are people getting it? And, and you know, it's, it's kind of a home run. So um, that's been one thing. And that, as I said, wasn't touching the framework, but it's giving us insights that i i i don't think most people get because i think most people stop at the did you report it the the second thing um david Gebler, who has uh, he's a remarkable expert in this space and actually has a history with some of the old lockheed martin training when it was a board game based on dilbert and then um joined us joined the team a couple of years ago And he took a look at how we were doing the training and did a refresh. And we actually touch base with Mary every few years. We'll have her come in and do a session with our ethics team. And and I know, you know, David connected with her to kind of look at, all right, what are we saying about the techniques? Is it clear? And how can we refocus ourselves on teaching the techniques? Because it gets really easy to to focus on the stories you're telling in the scenarios. And we wanted to make sure we were coming back to all right, are we really reinforcing that skill set? Because you have new employees every year and they haven't got the benefit of the 10 years of hearing it. So are we giving them what they need every year? So part of it is just making sure we keep it fresh.
0: Which, Which is a hard thing to do sometimes. And even when there are new topics coming up, again, making sure those videos are relevant not just to one group of employees, but to many groups of employees is the hard thing to do. Um, Now, (laughs) we're we're talking to a lot of people here who probably have either just read the book, maybe are starting to understand what GVV is, um, and hearing your story, hearing how Lockheed Martin has done it, it, is hopefully going to impact how they think about potentially bringing it to their organizations. Why would you recommend that people bring this to their organizations? I think we've, we've touched on it a little bit. You've seen some of those changes, but why? Why would you, if you move to another organization, why would you say this is a must for us to do? Well, well first of
2: all, it works. I mean, I, I think that the, the shifts that we've seen in the way that people approach the ethics office, the kinds of conversations that they have with us and the responses that we get on our employee survey tell us that it's making a difference. But also anecdotally, employees come back year after year after the training and say they understand the difference. So when we first rolled it out, we heard from quite a few people, hey, you're not just telling me do this, don't do that, but you're giving me the skills. So they recognized that that's what was happening. And and every year now after the training, when we ask questions about is is this helping you understand the techniques and will you use them? It's an overwhelming yes, it's in the 85 to 90%. The training helps them learn the techniques and either they already do or they will apply the techniques in the future. It works, so why should you do it? There you go.
0: Plain and simple, it works. That is why it should be done. I, I only want to ask you one more question to close it out and that question is, what else should listeners care about with voicing your values? What else should they think about on an individual, on a personal and organizational level that maybe we haven't gotten the chance to talk about yet? Um,
2: one thing to think about might be the tie to your organizational values. If, if you're doing it for an organization or if you're doing it as an individual, the tie to your own values and make sure that those values are also articulated and reinforced in the process, because what values am I asking you to voice, right? To what values are you applying the technique? So don't lose sight of that piece of the education and the reinforcement and the dialogue that ought to be happening all
0: one of One of the things that's really hard within ethics and compliance, and we hear it all the time, is, is collaboration with other departments. But It's also hard to reach employees where they're at and sometimes that tone from the top doesn't always work as well as you wanted it to so how how is your organization managing to reach all of your employees
2: yeah that's the challenge isn't it one of the kind of operating philosophies that we have for our ethics organizations we affectionately call it coordinated autonomy so the program is the program. The ethics awareness training is the same that rolls out to the entire workforce. But other aspects of communication and education and reinforcing things that are important to the individual businesses, that's decided within the individual business areas. So that's where a lot of the creativity around how do we engage with the workforce happens. And so that's where we've had things like Cartoons that got developed, or different kinds of videos, one business area may interview executives, another may create uh, displays on the the flat panel screens around the corporation where they've got quotations from senior leaders, and another business may say, Wait, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to have that from all employees. So it's the overarching content of the program and the overarching in this case framework of voicing our values, but then the details of the implementation happen at the business areas for the needs of the business areas. So if it's a heavy manufacturing site, they might tackle it one way. And if it's a a back office kind of operation, or it's an engineering and development operation, they may tackle it in a different way. There's not a one size fits all.
0: No, there is not. So important. I'm really glad I asked that question because you are so right. Those values have to be aligned. So as, as we all walk away from this conversation, the conversation that we had with Mary, there is hopefully a new perspective on how to voice your values, on on how this isn't just a framework that exists in theory, but is, is something that can truly be implemented and make a difference in an organization, both on the quantitative side of cases and information that you have, but also qualitatively that you're, that you're starting to see that anecdotally. And that is important. So Blair, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate the Lockheed Martin team that allowed you to be here and speak on behalf of them. And
2: we are so, so grateful for your time. Thanks, Lauren. I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you again to Dr. Mary Gentili and Blair Marks for their time and expertise presented in today's episode on giving voice to values. As mentioned briefly in the introduction, we will continue the conversation in the Converge community, converge.conversant.com. Over the next two months, I will be determining the next book that we will read, reading that book, and hopefully having you read along with me. I hope you consider joining us in the Converge community, and feel free to send me book recommendations or questions to ask in the next interview once the book is determined. I look forward to diving into episode three, airing in July of 2021. Thank you for listening, and thank you for leading.
2: Thank you.